0: Hey, church. Hi, good to see you. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, let's start with our offering this morning. So ushers, come on down. And as they do, uh, church, would you pray with me? And then we'll pass those baskets. So um, let's pray. God, uh, thanks, for, thanks for everything for the blessing of life and and relationships and love and this church family and and so many other things. God, we give to you this morning knowing a couple things, knowing that, uh, one, as we give, Lord, uh, it all belongs to you anyway. We just get to borrow it. So, uh, Lord, this is yours. And that when we give to you, Lord, you are doing mighty things for your name's sake here uh, through our church and beyond. So, Lord, we give out of joy and thanksgiving to you today. Amen. Amen. Uh, Thanks for being here, church. I, I have a report for you. You may remember, uh, oh, a couple weeks ago, we do this every year. We collected all the Operation Christmas Child boxes, and uh, just two Sundays ago, I think that was two Sundays ago, we packed them into the truck out there, and you guys brought them in, and and they got sent off, and uh, I have a count for you of how many boxes that you all put together and gave this year, and the final count from our team was over 1,600 of those boxes were donated and put together. So thank you so much for being a part of that. Thank you. Um, what a great chance to, to uh, provide for people all around the world, young people, especially during a holiday season when so many, so many young people don't get to uh, experience the giving and receiving of gifts like many of us do. So thanks for being a part of that and year after year being a part of that. And thanks for the team for organizing and and packing and doing everything. Um, Appreciate you guys so much. Uh, If you haven't noticed, it's December now. We're finally here. I I don't know if you noticed, but it's uh, officially the Christmas season. My, uh, my Facebook timeline over the last few weeks has been uh, just littered with pictures of many of you and friends and family going to cut down their Christmas trees or pick them out, bring them home, start decorating, and all that fun stuff. And uh, while uh, many of the stores I've been in have been playing, playing Christmas music since before Halloween, uh, I think it's finally we can say, okay, it's Christmas. It's the Christmas season. So... Um, Today is technically the second Sunday of Advent, Advent being the season, uh, the month or so leading up to Christmas Day during which churches all over the world prepare themselves spiritually to celebrate Christmas and anticipate the coming and remembering of the birth of Jesus and, and what that continues to mean for us today. So today I want to talk about Advent and Christmas and the coming of Jesus as we, as we step in and enter this Christmas season uh, together. Christmas, maybe you feel this way or not, but I feel this way, Christmas is a great interruption in my life. My bank account gets a little thinner. I've got to make plans. My in-laws are coming into town, and that's a whole thing. So uh, my normal mode and what I normally do uh, gets interrupted during the Christmas season. We've got shopping, got plans to make, got to go get that food, that Costco, you know, big hunk of beef before anyone else gets it and bring it home. Christmas seems to interrupt my normal routines and plans and and, uh, throws everything, it seems, into chaos. And maybe you feel that way, too. Christmas is a great interruption. It's not just an interruption for us, practically speaking, kind of in our schedules and our lives like that, but it's a great interruption for us in a deeper way, on a spiritual level. And I think if we can recognize the meaning of this interruption, it could change things for us, for our, for our faith, for our families, for our church, for everything. This interruption of Christmas. Let me tell you two quick stories. Uh, two quick stories. Um, Uh, Taylor and I got married during the Advent season. We got married on December 11th, 2010, uh, which is a very important date because not only was it a Saturday, we were like, that's a Saturday that works, but more importantly, uh, December 11th, 2010, 12, 11, 10, very easy for Matthew to remember um, the anniversary date. So uh, our our 12 year anniversary is a week from today. And these uh, two stories I'm gonna tell take place during our first Christmas season together as husband and wife. Uh, so two stories, these stories about my plans getting interrupted. The first story um, is this. Taylor and I got married on December 11th. We got back from our honeymoon on December 19th and I moved immediately. We, we flew back to Boston where Taylor had been living uh, for about six months before we got married and I moved into her space Right, Her apartment that she'd had for six months, now uh, Matt comes in, and now it's our space. So that's a whole thing in and of itself. So I move in, and we have three or four days before we have to drive back to Connecticut, where, uh, where our parents are and where we got married, to celebrate Christmas and to pack up all of our, most of our uh, wedding gifts and, and drive them back up to the Boston area where we, where we were living. So we've got three or four days together in the apartment before we go to Connecticut. Taylor has to work, but Matthew doesn't have anything to do. I'm waiting for uh, grad school to start in January. I hadn't landed a job yet. I was supposed to be job hunting, but who wants to job hunt in the days before Christmas, right? So I'm just sitting around the apartment, got nothing to do. Uh, Day two of having nothing to do, I decide I'm going to be productive today. Uh, And my project for the day was I was going to hang a painting, It doesn't take all day (laughs) projects, painting. Uh, This painting was uh, my wedding gift to Taylor. I had commissioned a friend and an artist to paint it for her as my wedding gift to her. So I said, while she's at work, I'm going to hang this painting. She's going to come home and be, oh, man, I'm so thankful. So that's my plan. Um, I'm going to hang it on the wall above our dining room table. Now, this is not a big apartment, and um, we had lots of stuff. You know, I move in. We got... There's not a lot of space, there's some stuff around the table, and I'm thinking, I don't want to move the table out of the way, I'll just climb on the table and hang, hang this painting. <laughs> now, it doesn't go like you think it's going to go, but it doesn't go well. Uh, we <laughs> I climb on the table to hang the painting, forgetting that on the other end of the table there was a, a lit candle. <laughs> It was a little candle, but it was in one of those like wax diffuser things, you know what I'm talking about? Like with the little wax puck that sits on the top and the little tea light melts it and it smells it. Ladies, you know what, I'm seeing head nods from the guys who are all like, uh, I don't know what you're talking So we had this, um, and it was kind of textured, it was ceramic and like textured on the outside. That's an important detail. So I climb on the table, forgetting about the lit candle. Wouldn't you know it? Immediately, the candle falls over, and this melted wax spills all over the carpet and uh, all over the ceramic textured thing. And so I put the drill down, I climbed down, and I'm starting to panic because this wax has already made its way deep into the carpet. And I got knocked, like, what am I gonna do, right? And I, I try to, like, scrape it off, nothing, and it's it just, just a disaster. And then I try to clean the thing and that Taylor had gotten, uh, you know, recently, and I'm trying to clean it because it's textured, the wax won't come off. So, um, you know, my plan was, what was my plan? To uh, do this nice thing for my wife, hang her painting up on the wall. But instead, as she comes... Comes home from work that night, I have to explain to her that, hey, I know I just moved in with you yesterday, but I already ruined everything. <laughs> and, um, you know, when we, mo- when we moved out, that wax was still in the floor. I couldn't get it all the way out. But, but um, plans, right? Sometimes plans get interrupted because we make mistakes, because things don't go the way we envision them, right? Sometimes plans get interrupted that way. Story number two, it's Christmas Day just a few days after the wax incident. And we're in Connecticut at my parents' house celebrating Christmas with my grandmas, my parents, and my siblings. We're having a good time. But we need to get back home that night, drive the three hours back to the Boston area. I forget why, but we needed to get back that night. And we were trying to leave quick because a snowstorm was coming through. And uh, we wanted to beat the snow and get home so we weren't stuck for an extra day because we had to get home. So um, we're having Christmas, and, and, and my parents... And their love for me and for us uh, that year got us a TV for Christmas. It's a pretty sweet gift. It was a 32 inch Samsung LCD TV, it was flat screen, high def. And that thing back in twenty ten was sweet. I was pretty excited for this, especially considering the TV we had at the apartment it was this like twenty-inch rear projection, like giant gray monstrosity that I just hated, right? You're trying to watch sports and you can't see anything. So I'm real excited. New TV, yes, it's giant, it's 32 inches. I, I can't wait to get it to get it home. And I started thinking, you know, Taylor, if we leave now, we can get home for the late NBA game tonight. We can set this thing up and watch the game on the new high-def TV, and this is all I'm thinking about. Let's go, babe. Let's get out of here. So we we pack up the cars. The snow starts falling, and and, uh, we're driving two cars home because after the wedding, we left one car there, and we had one car up in Massachusetts. Doesn't really matter. We're driving two cars home. So we pack the cars with our Christmas gifts and many of our wedding gifts as well, and uh, we say to each other, hey, drive however you're comfortable it's snowing Uh, we didn't make a plan to stick together we just said hey get home safe so I zoom off because that's what I do (laughs) (laughs) try to get home as quick as possible gotta get that tv set up right Uh, problem is the tv was in Taylor's car not mine so um so I get I make it I make it back and um I unload my stuff and and Taylor's nowhere to be found I'm like I know we said we'd say but where is she I'm starting to get worried snow's falling and uh, she has the TV. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, i got to watch this game. So I call her. She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on my way. I had to make a stop. What, what stop did you have to make? And she, all she says is, you'll see. And she hangs up. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> Who knows with that woman. So um, she shows up eventually. It's getting late. And I, I go out and I start to unload the car with her and the TV's sitting across the back seat, and I opened it up, and on the box, it doesn't say 32 inches anymore. Now the box says 40 inches. And I said, this is not the TV we put in the car, babe. What happened here? And she stopped on the way and upgraded the TV that my parents got, because she knew that that would be really, I'd appreciate that a lot. I missed, I missed most of that game, though. <laughs> Sometimes plans get interrupted, because there's a better plan that you might not be know about. (laughs) Interruptions happen for us all the time. Sometimes we cause them. (laughs) Sometimes other people cause them. Sometimes circumstances we didn't see coming cause them. And sometimes God interrupts our plans because he has a better plan in mind for us. Today, I want to go back in our Bibles about a thousand years before that first Christmas when Jesus was born I want to go back to a promise that God makes that would interrupt the plans of a king and continues to interrupt us today. So today we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. But before we read, I want to give a little context for where we're at in the story uh, in 2 Samuel 7. David. As a young boy, David, he was a shepherd. But he was anointed to be the next king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. And after years and years of waiting and running from his life from the paranoid and jealous King Saul, David finds himself anointed and crowned king of the whole nation of Israel. Saul has died. David has defeated Israel's enemies, the Philistines. He's gone to the city of Jerusalem and established Jerusalem as the capital city He's brought the Ark of the Covenant, which contained, uh, you know, the, the Ten Commandment tablets and some other things, into Jerusalem and placed them and set up the tabernacle tent there in the city, God's tent, his house. David has built himself a palace, a beautiful, big, lavish palace. He has servants. There's peace and prosperity for him and for his people at this point. But something is not sitting well with David For 400 years, since God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, God has not had a temple, a permanent temple like the gods of other nations around them. God told them to build a tent because for a long time they were on the move. So it was a collapsible, movable tent, but essentially just a big tent. But now David's established himself in the city of Jerusalem, and he says, God only has a tent. That doesn't seem fair. I have a palace. And the Lord only has a tent. So he tells the prophet Nathan that he plans to build God a temple, a house, as he says. And Nathan initially says, that's a great idea. You should do that. He tells that to David. It sounds like a great plan. God, he's the creator of the universe. He deserves a a great temple, a beautiful temple to be worshipped in. But he only has a tent. But later, a little later, God responds to David's plan. And he tells Nathan the prophet to bring his words to David and say, tell David this is what I said. And he says to David, listen, I've never lived in a house. I've always had a tent since the days I brought your people out of Egypt. And you, David, I I took you out of the pasture. You were a shepherd and now you're a king. And I've gone with you wherever you go. I've never asked for a house. God interrupts David's plan to build a temple And in doing so, he makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And we'll read verses 11 through 16. And with this promise and these words, God is going to interrupt David's plan to build a temple. So remember, this is the Lord speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. So these are God's words. We'll start in verse 11. And it says this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David says, God, you deserve a big house, a temple. That's David's plan. He's going to build God a temple. But God says to David, not so fast. No, you're not going to build me a house I am gonna build you a house, That's what God says. It's a great reversal of plans that God has here. Here's David, he's king. He's got a beautiful palace. He has peace and prosperity for him and his people. David doesn't need anything else. He's got everything he could ever dream of. And David recognizes that God could be honored and worshiped in a greater way by building him a permanent temple, a beautiful, ornate place for people to come and gather and worship him. He wants to honor God in this way. That sounds really nice, David. It does. But God says, no, you're not going to do that. And he interrupts David's plan because God has a better plan in mind. David is not going to do any building. He's not going to build God a house. God says, I'm going to build you a house. And by building David a house, something far greater than David could have imagined or planned for is going to happen. And the house God's going to build is going to be far greater than anything David could build because God is doing the building and what he builds will last forever. In this promise from God, in these verses we just read, God makes six I will statements to David that reinforce the fact that God's going to do the work, what he's going to do, and how he's going to do it. So we're going to work through these six I will statements. Some of them deserve more attention than others. We're going to just gloss through a couple. We'll dig into a couple. But let's work through these six I will statements from our verses here today. So we'll just start with the first one, which comes in verse 11, where God says, It says, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. First I will statement, God says to David, I will make you a house. It's that great reversal of plans, right? David wants to build God a house, but God says, no, David, I'm going to make you a house. This verse is really interesting to me because in the English, it doesn't... It's missing something. And what I mean by that is there's a, there's a preposition in the original Hebrew that a lot of English translations, for whatever reason, don't seem to bring out. And I think maybe part of that is it doesn't make a lot of sense in English, at least at a first reading. How the Hebrew literally reads in this verse, in this I will statement, is um, it says the Lord, that's his name, Yahweh. It says Yahweh will make you into a house. There's a little preposition there in Hebrew. I will make you into a house. Now, God is not going to use David's body to build anything. (laughs) He's not going to make an actual house for David either. David has one of those. He's got a pretty good one at that. But he says to David, I will make you into a house. That's what he actually says. So what does this mean? Well, this is a promise to David that, he will con- that his family will continue to rule over Israel. It's the promise of a dynasty. Not a building to live in. But he says, I will establish you and you will endure. God is promising David a lasting prominence and kingship by establishing a dynastic kingdom. That his family will continue to rule Israel for generations to come. He's promising a dynastic kingdom, a dynasty. So how's he going to do this? Let's go to the second I will statement. This comes in verse 12, where God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Second I will statement. I will raise up your offspring after you. Now, that word offspring in English, we can understand it as both singular and plural, right? You can say, here's my son, that's my offspring, or it can mean multiple children, or it can mean generations, my, my, my children their children and their children. That's kind of how we understand in English, that word offspring. It can be singular or plural. But in the Hebrew, this word is singular. If it was plural, it would be a different word but this word is singular your offspring singular and the the word is literally the word seed your one seed <laughs> your one offspring your one child now for a dynasty you need many offspring right you need generations of them children and grandchildren and great grandchildren that's what you need for a dynasty your successor and their successors after them and this is where I think this starts to get interesting in this passage, is that God says this singular offspring will come, he'll come from David's own body, it'll be one of his trueborn sons, and we would assume, as was the custom in uh, any most kingdoms in the ancient world, and, and even today we see it play out, is uh, the firstborn would take the throne after um, the father passed, or mother in some cases. So we'd assume it would be the firstborn. Now, at the time of this promise, David has two sons already. Their names are Absalom and Adonijah. But if we look at God's promise, the I will statement, this promise is a future tense. He says, I will raise up your offspring who will come from your own body. God is promising someone who hasn't been born yet, it's a future son not one of his two sons who are already there. Now, uh, if you've read the this, this story before, we, you know that David's son Solomon would succeed him as king in Israel. Um, Solomon's not born yet. In fact, he's not born for five more chapters after this promise in, in 2 Samuel 12. The promise of a successor here skips over our assumption that David's firstborn son is not Who God is talking about. He's talking about a future son. And this future son will be raised up to take David's place as king over God's people in Israel, continuing that dynastic house that God has promised. But I think the promise that God makes here is even more interesting than this and goes beyond Solomon, but I think we need to read the rest of these I will statements to, to understand that fully and flesh it out. So let's go to the third I will statement, where in verse 12 at the end, he says, God says to David, I will establish his kingdom. This word establish is repeated several times throughout our uh, passage today, and when words repeat in the Bible, it's, that's a thing to take note of. Hey, This word's repeating. It's a special emphasis that's given to those words. And I think in the context of our verses here, it's that the Lord is the one doing the work. He's the one establishing, not David or anyone else. And because the Lord is gonna establish this dynasty and this throne and this kingdom, it can and will endure many hardships, and it does. Let's go to the fourth I will statement, which comes in verse 13 where God says about this future son, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is the first time the word forever is used in this passage. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And when God says forever, he doesn't mean a long time. He means forever. But... There's no king of Israel today. David's child, none of David's children are sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament after this, David's dynasty doesn't actually last that long in the grand scheme of the world, just a few hundred years. David's son Solomon, who takes the throne after him, he's gonna build the temple in Jerusalem He's going to build God's house, like God says here, right? Your offspring will build the house for my name. Solomon does that. The future son builds the temple. But later in his life, Solomon worships some other gods. Solomon had a lot of wives, and a lot of them were from other nations who worshipped other gods. So he was worshipping the gods of many of his wives. And that led to God's judgment. And after Solomon, the kingdom divides in two. So they a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And many of David's descendants who ruled in the southern kingdom, the kings there, they also worshipped other gods pretty often. And because of the failure of the Davidic dynasty, the Lord exiles his people from the land of Israel. In 722 BC, the Assyrians would come and defeat the northern kingdom and take them away, and they would never reestablish And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians come and defeat the southern kingdom where David's offspring were were ruling. And many of the people in Jerusalem, especially the higher-ups, were taken away to Babylon in exile. But in exile, the line of David remains. God's promise is not taken away. And many of the Israelites, after seventy years, are permitted to return to Jerusalem. And they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city, but there's no more king in Israel. The people are now subject to other powers and other empires and other kings. And that's the case for the next five centuries. David's offspring survive. His lineage is intact but there's no longer a throne on which to sit and there hasn't been since. So uh, the Lord says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Um, How? How is that true? If there's no throne to sit on And, and how is this future son king when there is no king? Through those centuries after the exile and the people return, there is an abiding hope among them, that because of God's promise to David here in 2 Samuel 7, God will one day raise up one of David's descendants to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne of God's people once again. And that hope abides. And God's people wait for hundreds of years. And finally, one of David's offspring comes to Jerusalem humbled and mounted on a donkey. And as he comes, the people are going to shout the word, Hosanna, save us, and lay palm branches at his feet and lay their coats in the dust of the road as Jesus rides into the city. But Jesus doesn't sit on a throne when he gets there. He's put to death. He dies on a cross. And to many, this rain... <laughs> It stopped before it even started. But God, as we know, raises up Jesus from the grave, the son of David, according to the promises made to David. Jesus is the Davidic king who reigns over God's everlasting kingdom. If you go to the first words of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, that's what opens the New Testament. The first verse, the first words say this It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew would spend the next few verses tracing Jesus' heritage back to King David, proving that he is the offspring of David. Do you ever smell a smell or hear a piece of music that kind of transports you back to a moment, a memory, a time of your life, kind of our senses have a power that uh, can transport us back in time. I, uh, I have a stack of albums that do that for me, uh, that transport me back to certain times and places in my life. There's an album by a band called Further Seems Forever called The Moon Is Down, which reminds me of driving around in high school with my friends aimlessly uh, late into the night. Or uh, this, the album Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, Reminds me of a road trip I took across the country with a friend of mine, and as we drove into Nebraska at like 1 a.m., we said, let's, let's listen to Nebraska, and that transports me back into that place. You know, Matthew wrote his gospel originally for a first-century Jewish audience, They were Jewish people. They had a background in the scriptures and in the law and prophets and all the writings. And when a first century Jewish person would open the book of Matthew and read those words, the book of the uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, they would be transported back to that promise made a thousand years before to David, that one of his sons would reign forever on the throne of David, that God would establish his kingdom And see that that promise is fulfilled in Jesus now and forever. God has established his kingdom. Jesus is David's offspring. And his kingdom is eternal. Let's go to the fifth I will statement as we continue to flesh this out. Verse 14. Where God says of this future son, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. David's offspring, David's son, will be God's own son as well. If you, uh, like I said, if you finish reading the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, we see that traced out by Matthew. He's David's offspring. He comes from the line of David. He's David's son. But he's also God's son. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary And when Jesus is baptized by John in Matthew 3, the heavens open up and a voice calls out, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is David's offspring and he is God's own son. And the sixth I will statement comes in verse 14. This one's a little more challenging. God says of this future son, he says when he commits iniquity, that means when he sins. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So when David's offspring sins, God will discipline him with the rod, right? This is, a, this is an image of, of corporal punishment, of lashing, of hitting. But is this talking about Jesus? It's when he commits iniquity. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't sin. He didn't commit iniquity. He was perfect. So what's that mean? Well, the way a lot of Old Testament prophecies work is they actually have two events in mind um, when when they're being prophesied. Something is about to happen and something in the future is gonna happen. And a lot of Old Testament prophecies talk about two things at once and kind of bring them together in the prophetic word they have. And um, I believe this passage has both in view here as well. You know, this passage as a whole is talking about David's offspring in the near and distant future. Part of that is Solomon. Future son who's going to raise up. He's going to build the temple. Solomon does those things. He sits on the throne of David right after David. And Jesus is in view as well, who comes about a thousand years later. And Solomon, he certainly was a sinner in need of discipline. And we see that in scripture. And the kings after him are as well. So as the king who sits on David's throne, God's going to correct him. He's going to discipline him, and he does. But in that future view of Jesus, he's in view in this passage. And if we read Second Corinthians five fourteen and 15, it says this about Jesus and this idea of the rod and stripes of men. It says that one has died for all. One has died for all. That's Jesus. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus died on the cross. And before he was nailed to that wood, he was beaten and bloodied. He received the rod and the stripes of men, the means that men used to discipline. But this didn't happen because Jesus sinned. It happened because... We all sin, the rest of us. And to remove our iniquity and to cleanse us from our sin, Jesus received the rod so we don't have to. Any good king works on behalf of their people. He has them in mind. And that's what Jesus does. He worked on behalf of us to represent us to God in heaven and receive the rod and stripes of men on the cross king jesus removes the penalty of sin from us so that we can walk into his kingdom perfect and cleansed and fresh and righteous prepared to dwell there forever now these six i will statements in this passage are promises by god to david of something greater than any plan that david could have schemed up it's greater than a temple There's no more temple in Jerusalem. That thing crumbled. It's greater than a dynasty. It's greater than any earthly kingdom. The promise is Jesus. And through Jesus, eternity for all of us in a forever kingdom with our king. God's kingdom is established by God himself. David wanted to do the building. But God interrupted David's plan and says, you're not going to do the building, David. I'm going to do the building. And because God does the building and makes the plans, establishes his kingdom and his king, it's never going to end. It's forever. Now, following these six I will statements in this passage, there is one will not statement. So let me read verses uh, 15 and 16 again, the last two verses of the passage, this will not statement, where God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever forever. It says, my steadfast love will not depart from your offspring, David. Now, steadfast love is this Hebrew word, hesed. And if you've been in church for any length of time, at some point you've probably heard that word, hesed. It's an important word. It's a deep, rich word in the Old Testament and in the story of God. Hesed is a, a word that means a love that doesn't change with circumstances. It's a love that doesn't, isn't dependent on how I feel that day. It's a love that's foundation is a promise and commitment. It doesn't change, it endures. And this word most often refers to God's covenant loyalty to the people of Israel. When he said to them, I will be your God, you will be my people. Be holy for I am holy. He Gives them the law, he says. Um, uh, he enters into this covenantal, Hesed sort of love with them that he will protect and guide and remain with them no matter what. And in his promise to David... God says, my hesed will not depart from you or your offspring. So no matter how many times they fail, no matter how many other gods they worship, no matter how many years I have to put them in exile till they start to get the point, my love will not depart from you, David, or your offspring. And it doesn't. And because of that, God's promise in verse 16, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever. Can remain. It's emphatic and undeniable, it's enduring that uh, David's throne will last forever because it is established by God and God guarantees that his Hesed, his love for him, will not depart. And this has come true because Jesus is the offspring of David who sits on the throne, the throne of heaven. I think God's plan was much better than David's plan. David wanted to build a house, a temple for God, a brick and mortar structure. That was really nice of him. Sounds great. But God was not satisfied just to have a building erected in his name. God wanted to save the world through David. And in doing so, build more than a temple. To build a kingdom that will last into eternity and for eternity. You know, sometimes God has better plans than we do. It's true. (laughs) He's a lot smarter than us. And sometimes he has to interrupt our plans as well-meaning as they might be because he has a better plan in mind. Interruptions happen for us all the time. We cause them, other people cause them. Circumstances get in the way. And then there are those times when God interrupts us. Because he has something better in mind. The Christmas season offers us a chance to remember that God has a better plan than any of us could ever scheme up. The world is a pretty rough place from time to time. I think you know this. There's violence and drug abuse and domestic abuse and gun violence, terrorism, poverty homelessness it's, uh, it's everywhere. And doesn't it seem like someone always has a plan to fix it? Vote for me and I'll fix that thing. Or give to my organization and I'll fix that thing. And what about the challenges you face in your own life? Your problems. You're going through stuff. Doesn't someone always have a plan for you <laughs> to fix how things are going? Well, just break up with that person or stop buying that coffee at Starbucks and put it in your savings account or move to a cheaper apartment, change your doctor. People like to have plans for us. And while those plans might make an impact, that impact will eventually wear off because the problems of this world and the problems of our lives are are just too big for any one of us to face and take care of on our own. And that can seem hopeless. But because 3,000 years ago, God said to David, I'm gonna make you a promise. There's gonna be a king forever. And there's gonna be a kingdom forever. And he fulfilled that promise. We today, here and now, can hope and rejoice because God has fulfilled his promise to David. Jesus sits on the throne. And because God's plan was better than David's plan, death for us is not the end. And the problems we're facing today don't get to dictate our future. This is a reason to hope in the Advent season because there's a king on God's forever throne, a loving, self-sacrificing, eternal, good, promised king who brings something better than we could accomplish on our own. Christmas is a great time to be interrupted, interrupted by this truth and to start to live this truth. And as I've thought more about this, God's God's promise to David interrupts so much more than just David's plan to build a temple. Jesus's birth totally interrupted the status quo of the world and the universe. Jesus came and the Pharisees couldn't control him. Rome couldn't even kill him. He rose from the grave and in 2,000 years since then, the world has seen empires crumble and nations rise and fall, but Jesus is still seated on the throne of heaven, and he reigns forever. Christmas season is an interruption of everything, personally and cosmically. It's an interruption for us today of our own little kingdoms, It's a reminder for us to slow down and realize who's really in charge and whose kingdom we really live in. It's not my own kingdom. It's not the kingdom of American democracy. It's not the kingdom of the president, not the kingdom of the governor, the city council. It's not the kingdom of my parents. It's not the kingdom of my children as much as it feels like that at 7 a.m. at a cold hockey rink on a Saturday. We live under the rule of the king of the universe, the God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the birth of Jesus broke the rule of all our little kingdoms to show us that there's a better kingdom and there's a way to get to that kingdom through him. And every year during the Christmas season, we have a chance to sit back and to remember this. Remember who's really king and what it might mean to be a citizen of his kingdom. So let Christmas interrupt you this year. Let this Advent season interrupt your life. And take the chance to stop trying to govern your own kingdom and see how God is already at work in ways that you never planned for. Take the chance to give control of your kingdom to God and be interrupted. And if you're feeling the stress and anxiety of sitting around the table with people you might disagree with and politics or whatever, let Christmas interrupt all of that and remember that none of us are in charge anyway (laughs) and live into the grace that we can have for each other because we're citizens of a kingdom that doesn't belong to us, of a greater king, an eternal king. So let the birth of Jesus interrupt you and help it change your perspective this Christmas season. Let's end in prayer, church. Would you stand and let's, uh, let's pray? God, thanks for the interruption. Try hard as I might to do things right or well or even just the way I want to. <laughs> Lord, you remind me that I am, uh, I am just me. you your God. you're eternal and you are good and you are bigger and better than I could ever dream to be. And, and Lord, you've invited me and all of us to put down the keys to our own kingdoms and hand them to you and allow you to rule our hearts and our minds and our relationships and our decisions because you're good and you're bigger and smarter and better than any of us. And you invite us into that. God, thank you for coming. And thank you that every year we can take this time to remember your coming. Not just to celebrate that you came, but to remember what it means for us that you came now. And to sort of reset how we live in light of that truth. Continue to interrupt us this Christmas season, God, and show us your better kingdom. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, church. Oh, it's a blessing to be with you. Have a great day. Enjoy uh, the sunshine. And we'll see you soon.